got a hundred rand note. It's not counterfeit. <laughs> it's a hundred rand. So, um, it's mine. Hey, it's not yours. It belongs to me. It's mine. I can do anything I want to with it. And so this is what I've decided to do. Well, anybody think of a reason why I shouldn't? If it was yours, what would you do with it? You'd save it? What good would that be? You'd just save it. Well, spend it. On what? No, man. It's no fun. It's the SBCA. On food. It's no fun. What would you spend it on? What would you do with it? Yeah. Give it to the SPCA. How many of you think that that sounds like fun? Does that sound like a real fun thing to do? doesn't sound like fun to me. So, it's mine. I can spend it any way I want to. Buy alcohol. Well, I did. It was fun for a while. Come on, life's got to be fun. Can you not do something fun with this thing? What can you do? What would you do? Take some orphans to the beach. Take some orphans. Oh, no. I mean, how fun is that? Take some orphans to the beach. Can I hear a yay? Go to movies. Uh, yeah, but they don't last. It's mine. I can do whatever I want to with it. Well, that's not fun burning it. Well, it was kind of pretty for a while. Kind of lit things up. Oh, it's how religious. <laughs> I'm being silly. And actually, somebody said to me one time, it's actually illegal to burn money. I don't know. It wouldn't be the first time I've done something illegal, so it does not bother me. What I'm trying to do, though, is impress on you this. This is, this is mine. It's mine. And I can spend it any way I want to. And this is just a metaphor for my life. It's my life. It's mine. I can live it any way I want to. And I want it to live for fun. For fun. I mean, come on. Come on, give it to the poor, um, buy an orphan a t-shirt. Those things to me were like, actually, <laughs> you have no idea what this can do. By the time I was finished burning my life up in bits and pieces for what I thought was fun, I probably had about that much of my life left. I don't know whether they'll do it here or not, but as long as you've got just over half a bill, you can take it to the bank, and they'll actually give you half of what this is worth. 
Don't know whether they'll do it here or not. But what I'm doing is I'm trying to, I'm hoping that especially with all of you who are younger, but even ones who are not so young, to impress on you that when you burn your life up in doing what you think is fun, you, you don't have much left. You don't have much left. You've got to pay attention. The other thing, though, is good news. Because I had about that much left. And uh, I was in a mobile home, what you call a Plettenberg, in a little town in Texas called Lorena. When I came to the end of myself, I didn't have anything else left to burn in my life. It was gone. It was gone. And I finally, I, I just gave up. I just surrendered. Just can't do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. But I'm getting ahead of my story. <laughs> when I was born, I, I grew up in a, in a family of, of Christians, Christian, Christian home, but a home with secrets, a home where what you saw on the outside didn't look anything like what was happening on the inside. And so I grew up um, not knowing who I was. And I didn't know my value. I didn't have any value. I was just something to be used, something that was supposed to somehow give pleasure, and uh, that was it. So I ran away from home when I was 17. Now, back when I was 17, which really is beyond the render pest, um, the only way you could do that without them grabbing you and throwing you back inside your home was to get married. So I ran away and got married when I was 17. Some of you have seen a thing that I carry in my Bible. Um, it's, <laughs> it's a bit weathered at the moment. It's this. It's this. This is the story of my life. This is my life on a page. My life on a page. I, one time I sat down. I think I was in the Berg, and I was trying to remember sort of the order of events kind of thing. And, and so I wrote it down on a piece of paper. And uh, the only thing I had was a red pen, so it ended up in red. So I was 17. I got married. I had my first child at 18. This is before birth control, ladies. First child at, eight, at uh, 18, I was separated. At 19, I was divorced. No, I had my second child when I was 20. I was divorced at 21. I was married at 22. I had my third child at 23. Fourth child at 24, 25, separated, 26, divorced, 27, married again. And it goes, just goes on, just goes on and on and on and on because I was told a lie. I was told a lie that, that actually formed the direction of my life for years and years. I was told that the route to happiness was you found a guy, you fell in love, you got married and you had kids. <laughs> so the theme song of my life was if at first you don't succeed, Try, try again. Uh, 
we, I was laughing one time. There was a bunch of us. We were sitting on, on holiday in the Bergen and uh, having breakfast, and people were talking about their weddings, you know. Um, I wasn't married, but uh, they were all talking about their weddings and what did you wear, you know, what did you wear to your, to your wedding. So some of the guys said, well, you know, shirt and tie, and some said suits, and some said tux. And some of the gals said, well, I wore a white long dress, and somebody said I wore a short dress. And somebody else said, well, we got married in at the, by Justice of the Peace. I wore a suit. So they said to me, Eileen, what did you wear? I said, I wore a long dress, a short dress, a suit. I wore a pink dress, a yellow dress. <laughs> over and over again. Train wreck. Absolute train wreck. See, I was taught, or it just was in my head, that what I needed, what I, what I needed, that there was life out there. Do you know what I mean? There was life in great big letters and and it was just going to be excitement and stuff you know I, an old western song says looking for love in too many faces looking for love in all the wrong places that was me that was me i wanted somebody to love me i wanted somebody to cherish me I wanted somebody to take me under their wing, which they did. Of course, they did other things, too. <laughs> so a time came when I had four kids. I was living in a place called Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, um, where the summers are hot and the winters are 40 below. And uh, I just went off the rails. I just thought there's more to life than this. There's more to life than this. So I looked at my situation and I decided what I needed to do was go to Mexico. So I went. I went. Left my husband, left my kids, took my car, and off I went. You know, I, I learned uh, uh, then, but I, it didn't stick that how you value yourself, the value that you have attached to you is the value that other people put on you as well. We teach other people how to treat us. We teach other people how to treat us. I went to Mexico and guess what? I met a guy. I met a guy, and I came back, and he lived in Waco, Texas. So I moved into Waco, Texas. And then uh, working things out, I just thought, you know what? Um, I really can't. I've got four kids. I really I can't look after four kids. So I thought, well, the last two actually are from the same guy. So I just left them with him. That's it. My little boy was two. My girl, my daughter was four, and that was it. I was off and running. They were inconvenient, if I'm honest, to what I wanted to do. I mean, how can you, go a, how can you do anything with four kids, for crying out loud? You know, what are you going to do? If you can have half the number of kids, you can buy twice the number of clothes. 
I know, it's shocking. Shocking. One of the things I said to Mary Ellen earlier was, you know, I always kind of kind of hesitate when, when I sort of share my testimony because it sometimes is like a soap opera. You know, it's like as the world turns, you know, or whatever. And it, and it can just get so kind of sensational that we get caught up in all of the sensation and we don't realize I'm not, ta- I'm not telling you today about a story of sin. What I'm trying to do is put over God's amazing grace. You know, when you start down a road like the road that I was on, you open the door to all kinds of things. And what the devil throws through that door can sometimes really land you in a situation. Turns out the guy that I was with in Waco, who actually was, I really loved him. For the first time, I actually really, really, truly, truly loved the guy. Beat me silly. Beat me stupid. Right? So I, I was at university. I went, I went back to school. I was at university at the time. And I would wear my hair, you know, cover the green bruises or purple bruises on my forehead. Or, you know, one time he dislocated my thumb. Um, trying to get me to tell him who I was with, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, I lived in fear. Now, that was an emotion I was actually quite familiar with because I was fearful as a kid as well. As a child, I just felt I never really measured up. There was something lacking. There was something different. If you kind of really knew me, you wouldn't like me, you know, Um, it's just it's like one of those things. Um, all sorts of stuff had to be changed. And I thought that was really unusual until a few years ago when I heard that, you know, it used to be when, when, when kids matriculated that their folks would give them a gap year or something like that, you know. Um, and so they'd go off to the U.K. or Australia or wherever. I was talking to a plastic surgeon. He said increasingly for matriculant girls... They don't want a gap year. They want plastic surgery. Well, see, I relate to that. I don't know. How many relate to that? I related to that. Come on. If I could just have had bigger boobs, certainly bigger legs. They used to say to me I had no visible means of support. My legs were so scrawny. You know, a different nose, something, something. Because I never felt adequate. I never felt right. Real people pleaser. You could treat me any way you wanted to if afterwards you just kind of said something nice. So, that man died in an airplane crash. And my life took a drastic change. It got worse. (laughs) It got worse. I remember being so angry. I was so angry. And I remember standing in the hallway of the house that we were living in. And I remember all the Sunday school stuff and everything that, you know, I'd heard as a kid. And I stood in the hallway and I said, fat use you are, God. Hey? So Jesus, 
You're supposed to come into my life and everything go right. Well, get out. Get out. And I stood there and I said, devil, you come in. Well, I didn't feel any different. I didn't feel anything happen, you know. Nothing really, you know, sort of sensational, anything. So, of course, we think that words don't mean anything and things we do and whatever don't mean anything. And you know what? God's grace, God knew I was hurt, angry, confused. You know? I think Philip Yancey said something in a book he he wrote called Vanishing Grace. And, And he said this. As Christians, we can sometimes get really judgmental with people who sin differently than we do. You know, but all of us, all of us have had to look to God's grace. And even there, well, I didn't think it meant anything, but I tell you what, my life just went over a cliff, (laughs) just went over a cliff. The next thing that happened was I met a guy. (laughs) I'm telling you. There you go. That's it. That's it. Well, I probably looked like the female counterpart of the dog, so. And this guy was a 32nd degree Freemason, and he believed that Lucifer was a good guy. So, life lessons for me have included things like words said casually, said in anger can have dramatic results. You know, I've, I've, I mean, even words, you know, spoken like that. Um, I read somewhere, <laughs> someone said, you have a tongue that could slice rock. And that was me. My mother used to say to me, she's a little Irish woman, she used to say to me, and girly, what have you had for breakfast this morning? Razor blade soup. <laughs> well, In amongst all of that, I moved countries, I moved continents three times, (laughs) learned the lesson from, as they say in AA, that wherever you go, guess what? There you are. (laughs) Same old you, same old you. I, I ended up in a place, because now alcohol had come in in a big way, because I was just full of fear, I had done so much stuff. You know, I, I don't want the bright light of morning. You know, I don't want sunshine in my life. Thank you very much. And so alcohol kind of helped to fuzz that up. Now, I had started drinking when I was 13. Um, you know, sampling dad's whiskey, filling it back up to the level with water. And then <laughs> one day my dad came in furious because somebody had been watering down his whiskey. I didn't know my older brother was doing the same thing. (laughs) But alcohol was kind of the answer. So it started out kind of like it was a way to forget. It was a way to be funny, to have, to not worry, to just get rid of the old me that I really didn't like anyway. I ended up one time, um, because now I needed money, So I ended up one time smuggling. I started smuggling stuff. 
and uh, um, I ended up in a hotel room, in a real rundown hotel, and I was swallowing stuff, and <laughs> and it got stuck. So here I am, and I think, what the heck am I going to do? And every time I would take a drink of something, I don't think it'll reach. Every time I'd take a drink of something, I would try to swallow and come shooting out my nose. So I thought, well, you know, I'm choking, and what am I going to do? And I'm coughing and spluttering, and there's mucus everywhere, and I'm gagging. And, the, and, and I thought, you know, I mean, you can't phone and, and say... Please, 911. <laughs> Go to jail. Go directly to jail. Um, so I stuck my finger down my throat, and I had long nails, and I managed to hook this thing with my fingernail, and I pulled it up. And I looked at it, and I, and I thought, are you a stupid thing? I'm trying to swallow it like this. You swallow it like this. So guess what I did? Yeah. Turn it like this and swallow it. Hey? Huh? Just nuts. Just insane. Insane. And the whole time thinking, this is life. You know? This is life. People who live in the daylight, people who live during the day are the losers, man. They don't know what life's about. I want to read you a, a poem. It's called The World of the Shadows. Quite interesting. I just picked up one of the cards that was on the table. I'll give it back to you. <laughs> Keep your face to the sunshine and you cannot see a shadow. This is a poem called The World of the Shadows. This place is the world of the shadows, where silhouettes drift to and fro, where men talk of so many places who really have no place to go. Too shallow to see where they could be, too frightened to think where they go, too stupid to see any difference, too full of their own selves to know. This world has its own set of values, all born neath a dim tavern lamp. A girl, a man with two girls is a hero. A girl with two men is a tramp. Where reality comes from a jukebox, affection is measured in winks, and all men are measured in money, and money is measured in drinks. Where men who have lost talk of winning, and men who are old talk of youth, and men full of greed talk of giving, and men who live lives, lies talk of truth. Men who are blind talk of seeing, and men in the depths look above. And men without minds discuss living, and whores without hearts discuss love. This place is a world of the shadows, where silhouettes drift to and fro, where men talk of so many places who really have no place to go. They pass in an endless procession, like so many dolls on a shelf, and I'm chilled by the horrible feeling I'm becoming a shadow myself.
That was written by my brother in August of 1969. My older brother and I shared many things, and one of those was the fact of addiction, and another was the fact of recovery and God in our lives. See, I, I lived a life where I, I didn't murder anybody. <laughs> That's about the only thing, you know. Hey, might have been a contributing factor in the death of a few, though. I ended up in that little mobile home in Lorena, Texas. The guy I was married to then was in federal prison. And I was on my own. And the first thought through my head when the judge pronounced sentence that he'd be gone for five years, the first thought through this caring heart's mind was no one to check up on my drinking. (laughs) The second thought, because we'd just moved from a big seven-bedroom house to a three-bedroom townhouse, and it had a tiny closet. And the second thought through my head was, well, that solves the problem of the closet, because I was wondering how to fit all my clothes in there, you know, and get his clothes in, too. I don't have to get his clothes in. Closet's mine. But life lived at that level actually is not free. It's anything but free. It's fear-laden. It's shame-riddled. It's guilt-covered. And I got to the point where I just thought, how do I get out of this? I can't. For you to say to me, did you ever think of stopping drinking, is like me saying to you, okay, let's see how long you can go without breathing. Because I couldn't stop. I never tried. I never, oh, I I thought about it in the morning. (laughs) I'm not going to drink today, but guess what? I ended up in that one night, actually it was one morning. One morning, I was supposed to go, I was working as a nursing sister. How scary is that? Um... And there was a conference in Chicago that I was supposed to go to. So um, I was getting ready, and I turned the TV on. And I have no idea what was on the channel before, but was, what was on the channel at that point was Jimmy Swaggart, ah. who I thought was just a clown. I really did. I was like, really? Um, but he was talking about a lady in the Bible that had had five husbands and that the man that she was with at the moment didn't love her, didn't even love her enough to marry her at a time when women could not divorce their husbands, but a man could toss his wife out simply because he didn't like her cooking or he liked somebody else better. It's just out with nothing. And he started saying the words that Jesus said to her. And something sat. 
Now, I'll tell you what, you don't plant seeds, any farmer will tell you, you don't plant seeds into hard cement. <laughs> so not much stuck, but something did. I took off for that conference with a suitcase and a bottle of KWV brandy, and away I went. And I have no idea how, but I won the award. I won the best, whatever the heck it was, the ultimate prize. I didn't even know they were giving. I didn't have any idea. And they called me up on the platform, and I was drunk. I was drunk. And now they're expecting me to give this acceptance speech and tell people how, you know, what happened and how I did it and everything. And I had no idea. I had no idea. So I just stood up and told jokes. And they all laughed and everything. And I sat down. And one of the guys, a guy called Barry, said to me afterwards, that was really, really good. Hey, he said, you are really great. He said, we sort of thought that you were kind of going to tell us a few practical things. But gee whiz. It's like, really? I didn't even know any. I didn't know anything. I had talked them into, however, (laughs) there was an AA conference in Midland, Texas, and the prison that the guy I was married to was in had started an AA group. So he said, well, you're the (laughs) drunk, so you're going to go to AA, and I'm Al-Anon. He was the only sort of friend and family of alcoholics and addicts in the prison. So, fine, off we went. And uh, you had to attend so many seminars, you know, check in. And I would go, I'd go to the meetings of the prison simply because you got an extra visit. I'd buy, I knew where I could buy wine on the highway and still get to Big Spring and sort of be below the limit. I'd have my last drink on the prison parking lot. I just thought this is a bunch of absolute manure. (laughs) <laughs> well, I went to those sessions, and I, I, I heard nothing. But for some reason, on a Sunday night, just as the conference ended, I was standing at a kind of auditorium, and somebody was talking, and I slipped into the back. And I was standing at the back, and they had two speakers, a woman and then a man. And for the first time, I actually listened And I came out of that thing, and I said to the guy who sponsored that AA group, a guy called Clem, believe it or not, I said to him, I'm an alcoholic. And he said, oh, we know, honey. We know. He said, okay, this is what you do. You're on a booze cruise flight going home. Sit at the back. And he told me, ask for Coca-Cola. I said, I don't like Coca-Cola. I don't care what you like. (laughs) Ask for Coca-Cola. You're going to drink Coca-Cola for a month. And I learned all the sort of danger points for somebody who's trying to recover. When somebody says, what what would you like to drink? And I can't think because I think soft drinks are... Drink Coca-Cola. So every time somebody said, what would you like to drink? I said, Coca-Cola. Drank Coca-Cola for a month. I discovered that that God is not harsh. God is a forgiving God, full of grace, full of mercy. If I'd been God, 
and I looked at me, I would have gone, hey, piece of trash, absolute trash. The only person I knew in the area that was a Christian was a gal called Sharon, who I'd done nurses training with, and she was a backslidden Baptist. So I went to her, and <laughs> the two of us used to sit at her coffee table with our Bibles open and, and, and say, what did you read last night? I read this. Or what? And, we'd, and we'd sit and say, what do you think that means? You know? I, have no, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, I don't know. We sat. Then she said to me, um, maybe we should like go to church so I was like oh hot diggity dog you know I mean I'm going to walk into church people are going what to you anyway she said look they're having a big meeting at the university I don't know what it's about but it's at Baylor and so why don't we go because there'll be lots of people so I said fine so we went the auditorium packed full of people on one of these sloping you know auditorium things from the moment we left the car, I started to cry. When we sat down in the auditorium, I really started to cry. She's like, hey, mate, you know, are you okay? I mean, I, and we were sitting right at the end seats because we were late. When they started talking, they had a group that was singing. But, you know, the old kind of the stuff I just hated. You know, the old gospel kind of, you know, really, it's like, oh, I cried. I started to cry. You know how you can cry and your tummy goes in? I mean, you're just sobbing. I had one of the ushers come up and was like, and handed me like a pack of tissues, like, are you okay, lady? You know, I cried and I cried and I cried. I cried the whole way home. cried for days. God just releasing, just washing me with my own tears. I knelt down and I said, here I am. I don't know who you are, but if you'll have me, Please, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Right? I had no idea. All I wanted, all I wanted was forgiveness. That's it. Just forgive. Just forgive. I had no idea that God is actually not it's just in the forgiveness business. He's also in the restoration business. Hey? In the restoration business, years later, years later, the guy that I'm married to that was in prison died. And uh, I was on my own for 11 years. <laughs> then I met Colin. Hey. God restores. One of the things that 
God restored was my understanding of what manhood was all about. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not keep a record of wrongs. All of those things. We were in Canada one time, and my brother, this brother, (laughs) met me at the airport, or met us at the airport, and he said, Oh, by the way, Rob phoned. And I I said, Rob who? He said, your son. What? Yeah, he wants to talk to you. It's like, oh, no. Took me days. I was like the... (laughs) I was like the romantic young man trying to phone the girlfriend, you know, sort of go uh, to the phone and like, oh, no. Hey. Took me days to phone him. And when I phoned him, I heard the most gentle voice on the other side saying, I've known where you were for years and years. I often wondered what you'd do if I just popped over and knocked on your door and said, hi. I said, well, I probably would have said, Come on in. Would you like some coffee? So I said, but let me ask you, what would you do if I knocked on your door? Uh, He said, I'd say, come on in. Have some coffee. So we got in a car and we drove to Calgary. And we saw my son. He was 31. With no accusation. He wanted to know why. Why? But God just restored. He's not a Christian. A year later, my daughter as well. And we email and they send pictures of the kids. And God's in the restoration business. God restores what's broken. The fun thing is God's sense of humor. The, the church that we went to, Sharon and I, back um, in, in Waco, when I was first a Christian, guess what it was called? Hillcrest. <laughs> and I trained, I did some of my practical training at Hillcrest Hospital in Waco. Hilarious. When I was a kid, and people used to say to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I used to say, I want to be a doctor, and I want to go to Africa. I was driving down the road a few years ago, and I had just been, I just had a PhD accepted, and I was driving down Old Main Road, and I thought, (laughs) God's humor. I'm a doctor, and guess where I am? Not quite what I thought, (laughs) but God restores. You know, Hebrews 12, verse 15 says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Hey, make sure that people like me, people that are sitting with lots of fear and self condemnation, I'd self loathing that they don't miss the grace of God. Hey? My, my 
Bible has some places that are, oops, I need to stop just now. My Bible has some verses that are really, really super important to me. And my Bible is, I have several, but I use them as a working Bible. That's the one. That's the one. I went into Zondervan Bible Bookstore in Waco, Texas, after I, the morning after I'd knelt down, because I thought, well, I better buy a Bible. And the woman there said to me, because um, now there's like Bibles. There's like Bibles, <laughs> shelves of them. And she said to me, can I help you? And I said, well, I want a Bible. She said, what kind of a Bible? And I said, oh, a holy Bible. <laughs> so she said, have you been a Christian long? <laughs> and I said, no. She said, what church? I said, I don't know church. She said, well, what happened? So I said, I just prayed. So she said, why don't you take this one? It's called an NIV, and it's easy to read. And she showed me. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to from (laughs) and faultless and without blame before the throne of grace. 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 Me. And you don't know the tenth of it. Me. How does God speak to you? How is God interactive in your life? I find that God speaks to me in all sorts of different ways. And at my lowest points, you know, there's a song, actually, that the kids sing. I took my grandson to City Hill Youth, and they wanted him to come to a service. So we went on Sunday night. And this is the song. And amongst the smoke and mirrors and everything else that's going on Sunday night, they sing this. Love came down and rescued me. Love came down and set me free. Mountain high and valley low, I sing out to remind my soul, I am yours. I am forever yours. God speaks, and when, when we're in the darkness, when we're in the valley, the best thing to do is listen, to listen. The night that Colin died, this, this was his book. It's called Grace for Each Moment. Somebody had given it to him. One of the many kids that, Graham, that Colin was grandpa to had given it to him for um, his birthday. And I picked it up and started to, to read it. The day that Colin died, this is what he would have read. <laughs> The, the section was on praise. 
This is a section. This is what he would have read. Holy Father, I enter your gates with adulation. With praise I go into your temple court. I enter into your presence with joy and thanksgiving. I opened it the next day and started to read. It was early in the morning, and we were standing outside, his nephew and I, and there was a rooster crowing. (laughs) I'd never heard a rooster crow before in our neighborhood. This is what it says, the grace of a new beginning. He who was seated on the throne said to me, I am making everything new. says this, do not allow whatever may have happened in the past to cause you to lose sight of what the future may hold. If you wish to make a fresh start, make a firm decision to be done with your old life. And even though it will still try to enslave you, just remember all life, life comes from God. Continually affirm that new life flows through you as a result of God's grace. And you will receive the inheritance of new life that is yours in Christ. Lord of new beginnings. Thank you that each new day your mercies are new and I can begin again. Begin again, 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 again. Begin again. Can I read one more thing? This is a thing my brother also wrote. This he wrote just a few years ago. He died last March, a year ago. He's a good buddy. He wrote poetry, and you can see the quality of the poetry is amazing. And he also had a singing voice. Oh, played 12-string guitar and sang. It was amazing. He wrote this as a song, but it's also poetry. This is called Who Could Know? Who could know that all the twists and turns that shaped my life? So many plans of yesterday. Sorry, who, who could know all the twists and turns that shaped my life? All the people and the places that I never thought I'd see. So many plans of yesterday would never come to be. Who could know the bitter times just trying to find my way of stumbling through life's tangles in my anger and my fear that all my wayward wandering would finally bring me here? Who could know? God alone. Who could know that to the deepest darkness, sorry, who could know that in the deepest darkness there was light I'd stumble there with all the guilt and pain I felt inside. But who could know there was a door I thought was closed? It was really open wide. Who could know? God alone. Who could know the future of this road I travel now? All the unseen heights and hollows of tomorrow's still unclear. And who could know to guide me on this unknown road and comfort all my fears? 
Who could know all the twists and turns that shaped my life? All my wayward wanderings would finally bring me here. Who could know? God alone. So that's a bit of my life. I've lost me money. I burnt it. There it is. What's left of your life? Probably more than this. Certainly for you younger ones, more than this. What will you do? How much of it will you have to say, I am yours? I am forever yours. Can we pray? Yeah. Heavenly Father of new beginnings, Father of grace and mercy, Father of love, Lord, I pray today as we sit here, women who each of us have a story, everyone in the room has a story of where they went and what they did that they really maybe shouldn't have done, of all the choices that they made and didn't make. Father, I pray that the negativity in our life will never weigh us down beyond the point of realizing that we can look up to sunshine, that we don't need to stand in shadow, that when we're in a dark place, the best thing to do is listen, not talk, that we hear you when we stand before you quiet, when we look to you, not just because we need answers, but because we love you. To say that every place you've touched our lives, you've brought life. You've brought more, abundantly more than we could ever hope or imagine. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for each other, for every woman that's here. Your hand on their lives, Lord, on their families and loved ones. Keep us, Father, ever as a testimony to your grace, not projecting a goodness of our own, but reflecting your face, Lord Jesus, a face that looked to sinners, a face (laughs) that loved them without agenda, open arms that welcomed them, easy conversation that talked to them, that calmed their deepest fears, that gave them value, Father, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.